Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be back with y'all. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry of State. Also, ministry, ministry associate is my good friend, Will Stockdale. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Um, and as always, please don't forget to leave us a review. Uh, hit that subscribe button. Uh, make sure to leave us a comment uh, or a question. We do love to uh, hear from our listeners. But I think today what we wanted to... And it's go really ahead. good practice to allow people the space to respond if offended, feeling snubbed, you know, just to allow some, some feedback. I think Ray Dalio and his principles talks about like a radically open culture in a business place. And so yeah. really in a small way, we want to follow Dalio's principles. And like we have our own opinions and we have our own um, ideas, but that doesn't mean they, they're infallible and we can be questioned and... and push back on. So that's always good uh, too. Have you been accused of being opinionated? Uh, very often. My wife thinks I'm very opinionated, I think. Gosh, no one has ever said that about me. I- <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing about being opinionated. It's not viewed as being opinionated. Like these, are, these are like objective facts. <laughs> these, are, these are crystal clear realities that are being spoken about. This isn't some conjecture. Well, and that, that's definitely true of issues of politics and judicial nominees and hearings, which is what we wanted to get into today. Um, so, Will, maybe you can correct the, the record. You can be a, a little bit more opinionated today, uh, or at least prove that you're opinionated. Uh, so, obviously, the big news this week, yesterday, was the beginnings of Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings uh, in the Senate. Yesterday, Lindsey Graham opened up the hearings. Then we heard from opening remarks from... Uh, both Democrat and Republican senators. And then today, Tuesday, as we're recording this, uh, was the beginning of the questions from the senators for the judge. And so that's been going on. It's still going on right now. Um, We've been watching a little bit of it today even. Uh, But I guess I kind of want to just open up with, Will, what have been your thoughts so far? Yeah, Um, I watched some of it today. I didn't watch any of it yesterday. When Mike Lee was talking with Amy Coney Barrett, he did say at one point, he said, if I were to give a speech and like, if, say I give a glorious speech and then Amy Coney Barrett was responding and said, I'm sure it would be glorious. So it's kind of humorous exchange. But the point is, where should she be appointed? The name that she is going to have is in question and in, in contrast to the notorious RBG. Is it going to be the glorious ACB? Now, I don't know if that was, you know, part of the planning and scheming but the word glorious has already been kind of bantered around in discussion. Yeah. Uh, I turned it on in, in more serious notes. Uh, I saw John Cornyn asked her about the establishment clause and she had, she mentioned when she was interviewing for her position with Scalia, he asked her what area does um, she think could be more clarified. And she responded like the establishment clause and went into it. A lengthy dialogue and she's like honestly it's just a very complicated thing to flesh out and to to especially in a pluralistic context in which we live and i think we'll get to that more later but part of the so that has been a concern for us for a while is the establishment clause dick durbin uh, talked to her about her views on felony charges and uh, rights that are um, enumerated in the bill of rights and then the big thing for the left right now seems to be the affordable care act and as is predicted the rights big thing is making sure that she gets that she gets voted in 
There are no really controversial questions coming from anyone on the right. There is defense. There is, there's a stump speech, you know, there's soapboxing, but there's not the real hard interview questions. And it's, it's pretty expected. Yeah. I kind of got a sense of that from just hearing both uh, Lindsey Graham's opening remarks and then Senator Feinstein's uh, argument or opening remarks. Uh, It seems that, you know, the rights, at least from Lindsey Graham's perspective is we confirmed her to be a circuit court judge in 2017, only a couple years ago. We have the votes. She's getting confirmed um, pending some crazy thing, which is very unlikely at this point. Um, whereas, where, and it, it seems like Feinstein speaking sort of more for her side, they're going to not let it go without acknowledging the fact that, you know, what are the potential political implications of ACB on the court? And you mostly going after healthcare seems to be the issue. I mean, I've, I've heard a few questions that seem to go straight at uh, Roe v. Wade, but I just don't think that that, you know, that line of questioning might is as, is as effective anymore just because people kind of know where uh, these judges are on those issues before we get to this pro- to get to this point. You know what I mean? So it's standard fact. I mean, Senator Hawley has made this very clear. He's sort of been the only one that's been willing to really say it, you know, for what it is, which is Republicans nominate pro-life judges and Democrats nominate pro-choice judges. And that's just sort of the way it works. And that's a standard that's uh, it maybe it's not written out in policy, but that's effectively what happens. And so I think that we've seen fewer of those questions and mostly getting at healthcare because that seems to be, especially during a pandemic, that seems to be what's at the top of people's minds. Right. Uh, Klobuchar did cite Barrett as saying that she viewed Rover's Wade since it's passing in 1973 as a brutal legacy. So she took that as you clearly have a desire to uh, overthrow Roe v. Wade. Um, something that I thought was interesting as another senator on the re- Republican side was talking to Barrett and said, most Americans are under the impression that were Roe v. Wade to be overturned tomorrow, that abortion would be outlawed. And he's like, we need to clarify that here, that Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court is not the same as outlawing abortion. It simply changes the position uh, from the federal to the state governments at that point. And I, I thought that was an interesting point that was being made by a Republican senator on the abortion question. Right. And at the end of the day, it comes down to uh, a respect for president and that uh, I think it, the the argument, at least from the Democrat side about Roe v. Wade is, well, how could you ever overturn this long of a precedent? Um, without realizing the fact that the the precedent could have been wrongly decided. And I think in this case, right, we're dealing with is the right to abortion embedded within the Constitution and its enumerated rights. And regardless of how you feel about that, there's a lot of questions and debates about, you know, is that true or not? I mean, we have to remember that the Supreme Court has made some pretty bad judgments on, on things. I mean, and those precedents needed to be overturned. And let's be straight. We're come right out of the, of the woodwork here and say it. Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. It should not ever have been approved by the Supreme court. It was based on terrible legal reasoning. Um, 
the right to privacy was the one way that they were trying to get it through. It has been looked back on historically as very poorly written. So that it was the wrong decision for the Supreme Court to make and, and based on faulty reasoning. And it is, it is time that it gets overturned. And it's not defended in the Bill of Rights. Uh, so I don't know. I, look, I think it's probably fair to accuse me of being an ACB stan, which is kind of where I am right now. Uh, I, I think she's great. And uh, it looks like she'll get nominated and appointed, but I think that's a good thing all in all. Yeah, I think what I've really appreciated um, about Amy Coney Barrett is the way that her family has really taken a front row in this whole process. Uh, I think it's really good for, and I'm speaking mostly to a church context. I think it's really good for Christians who, where we all agree on the, on the uh, sanctity of life and the importance of the pro-life cause. Uh, it's, I think it's really good to see somebody that represents that movement as ACB does for so many people and to see how so holistically pro-life she is um, as a mother of two adopted children and the mother of a special needs child. Um, I think it does provide a good challenge back uh, to the church. I, for the most part, think that the arguments that come from a mostly pro-choice group that says, oh, you pro-lifers, you're really only pro-birth. You don't really care about the, the life after the baby is born. I find most of those to be weak uh, with evidence, but I'm still happy to be challenged that, in that way. And I think ACP does a good job of really challenging uh, the pro-life cause to really think about those kind of things. So I've been really thankful for her nomination in that sense. And to see her, see her kids uh, behind her during the process, I think has been good. I also think it's uh, regardless of how you feel politically, um, I think it's a good thing that uh, we could potentially have a Supreme Court justice that is a mother of school-aged children. And I think it's also a, a good thing that we would have a Supreme Court justice uh, who did not uh, go to Harvard or Yale um, and instead went to a very prestigious school. Notre Dame is a good, very good prestigious school, but a school that's, not, uh, that's in the Midwest uh, that isn't an Ivy, I think is a good thing for uh, the Supreme Court to have that perspective. I think it would be something that would be really uh, beneficial. And, you know, we, I guess maybe we could get into this, right? The, the representative element of, of the justice system. Um, I think it would be a good part on that. Uh, it would be a good addition in, in that sense, and that it would be a, a perspective that hasn't been really represented on the court uh, in a long time. Yeah. You know, there's part of me that thinks who cares if the, if the judge is supposed to be a body that interprets the law strictly and they are not to be uh, legislators they're not they're not a representative form of government on the one hand i'm like i don't really care what law school they went to as long as they're competent on the other hand there is a particular type of thought and there is a particular type of person that comes out of the harvard jail columbia law school and they're, and they're incredibly well qualified uh, and i and i maybe the other thing is like it is not uh where we are right now with the, the Supreme Justice on the Supreme Court and where they went to law school is not typical historically from where other people went to law school. Typically, there have been more law schools represented than just Harvard and Yale. Right now, that's where we are, though, uh, is just Harvard and Yale. So 
I, I think that'd be good. You know, one thing that I think is really interesting as part of the concern before her getting to these hearings was the religious question, but that has been conspicuously absent from them. I think that there was so much explosion and it wasn't like threat of explosion. I mean, there was an explosion of people saying, look, if you come at her on this, you are going to be dead in the water. Like this is going to be very bad for you. And I think they saw that and decided that it's not worth it. They saw what happened to Senator Feinstein out of California. And we're just like, no, 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 we're not. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, it's very clear to me that at least within this, at least with the senators, they're not going to touch that issue with a 10 foot pole. Um, it is interesting to me, though, that there is a group of uh, more activist type, journalists type on Twitter that are kind of befuddled why they're not talking about it. Like, why are they not talking about this People of Praise organization? Like, this is Handmaid's Tale. Why are we not talking about it? Um, and I think it reveals a certain disconnect uh, between that group and where most people in this country are about religion. Uh, and I'm actually pretty happy. I, it was one of the things I actually I prayed for on Monday morning uh, in my morning prayer. I, I did spend some time praying for these hearings. Uh, and I prayed specifically that this would not be a thing that we debated on the Senate floor, uh, that the senators would be charitable about her religious faith um, uh, and the religious faith of many Americans and that they would not use their platforms uh, to shame or discriminate against uh, people of religious people of faith. And so I, I'm happy that's not happening on the Senate floor, but it, it, I think there is a certain animating force out there that wants it to be an issue. It's just, you know, who's actually getting that platform or not. Um, so I guess I kind of wanted to ask this question because this is now uh, the second, um, I guess technically it's the third because we sh- Gorsuch went through a nomination process, although I don't really remember anything from that confirmation hearing. Um, I remember listening to it on the radio, uh, it, but that's, that's it. It seems to drown in the background noise of, of Kavanaugh, which was clearly the most uh, contentious uh, nomination hearing that we saw during this uh, administration. The, the atmosphere is totally different. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, like, what are some of the things that you've noticed uh, between the two as someone who watched uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and then now the, the Barrett hearings? Well, one seemed like a trial. Looking back, I had never watched a Supreme Court justice hearing. And so I didn't know what was normal. I'd only listened to the Gorsuch one. But then Kavanaugh was the first one I watched. And then watching Barrett, it's it's night and day difference. Uh, it felt way more tense. Uh, the questioning was way more direct. They were really going to – there was an attempt – on the Democratic side to prove that Kavanaugh was an attempted rapist, or at the very least, a, someone who got blackout drunk repeatedly, so you couldn't verify whether or not he had done that. And then you had the Republicans who had Rachel on their team, who was helping them out and trying to describe how the Democrats had pushed the nuclear option on this. And it was, man, it was intense feuding. And there just is not nearly that same level of, of bitterness, which is something actually to be very grateful for. It'll probably be as close a vote. Yes. As Kavanaugh, but at least watching the process is much more bearable. Yeah. I think it is interesting to see how uh, not having a crowd, not having a live audience has a, has changed the mood 
Uh, so I know during Kavanaugh's, there would be multiple interruptions throughout the hearing with protesters and activists. And there's just none of that with, with the Barrett, he- Barrett hearing just because nobody can be there because of CDC guidelines and stuff. So that's definitely changed the attitude. I mean, there is a sense that, you know, people need to tread a little bit more lightly when dealing uh, with her, I think, as opposed to Kavanaugh, just because, you know, she is, I don't think Democrat senators want to look particularly condescending or uh, are critical of a very successful woman. Um, I don't think that's something that they really want to do, especially a mom. I think that's another thing. Whereas, you know, Kavanaugh, he's sort of the standard, uh, straight white male guy and, you know, kind of all, all bets are on with him. So I think you did see a little bit more willingness to kind of use him as a, as a proxy for that. And so, uh, there's just none of that going on either. So that's been nice. Yeah. And, and I think there's also a sense of the inevitability of it all, right? Like, I think it's very clear from the very beginning that pending some crazy thing, she's going to be on the court. And so, um, it's now turned not really into a nomination uh, hearing about, you know, what are the merits or demerits of this potential judge? It's really, well, how does this really relate to the 2020 election and how can we, you know, say anything that might move the needle uh, on a vote? Uh, and I think that actually the person that was the most aware of this thing that was going on and I thought had some really great remarks was Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. Uh, and he made a good point about the difference between civics and politics. And so one of the things that he was talking about was that, you know, if you had tuned into the hearing as like an eighth grade civics student, you would have no idea that this was a a nomination hearing for a Supreme Court justice based on all the topics that had already been covered. And I think one of the things that he was talking about, what they were lamenting was that, uh, so Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then Justice Antonin Scalia, two very different jurists in terms of jurisprudence and, and ideology, both were uh, confirmed by the, by the Senate with 90 plus votes. Uh, and so one of the things that Lindsey Graham talked about in his opening remarks is why don't we have that anymore? And so Ben Sass was really hitting on why he thought we don't have that anymore. And he was really drawing out the difference between civics and politics and that politics is downstream from civics. So we kind of have to all agree on these really fundamental things before we move on to the, the nitty gritty work of, of politics. Uh, whereas there seems to be a, a reversal of that with some people um, in, in politics right now. And so I think that was really helpful. I thought it, he laid it out in such a very simple and straightforward way that it really cut through sort of the, the partisan narratives and talking points that tend to be the most dominant things in these hearings. I mean, and this is happens on both sides. I mean, I saw somebody tweeted out uh, right after Ted Cruz's questionings was, you know, is it really fair for ACB and to sit through uh, Ted Cruz's next presidential stump speech? And, you know, there's an element of truth to that, right? And, you know, but my hot take and hard opinion on this matter is a lot of this would go away if we just took the video cameras uh, out of the hearing process and we just let the senators do a nomination hearing and then let journalists report on it and not have to actually watch it on TV. But that's, that's another matter. Right. That, that is a whole nother matter. What are the implications there of having so much media intake uh, and, and the, the spectacle element of it that arises. One of the things that Mike Lee said in the hearing was that the 
purpose of government is to protect life, which is the second time recently that he has gotten into the purpose of government that has gotten him in trouble. He said recently that America is not a democracy, which was a terribly misconstrued argument written by Slate, I think, or maybe Vox. I get them confused. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just missing the point of what he was saying and using it as a, uh, an anti-democratic comment. And then, well, and then his point was that democracy is not the end. It's the means to an end. The end being life, liberty, and he used prosperity. We might just sub in pursuit of happiness, but that was kind of his point, right? That was the, that was the main thrust of the argument. Well, and I think it asked the question of what is the point of uh, our democratic republic, which I prefer to liberal democracy for a couple of reasons, but what is the, um, what is its end? And as it also relates to the question of civics and civics also seems to come before politics and that it should be the context in which we can do politics and then the outcome for humans to pursue the good. And I think there are some different concepts of how much solidarity, how thick or thin should be the solidarity. I know we were talking about this earlier before the recording, but um, we, we seem to live in a time where for a nation to survive, it has to have, there has to be a solidarity to some extent. This is Fukuyama's point of stories of peoplehood, which I've probably mentioned before that I think is a phenomenal um, idea. There is Lord Moulton's maxim that um, the greatness of a society is measured by its, ad, by its adherence to the um, unenforceable. We have that. So there has to be solidarity to some extent. But right now, especially with COVID, and you mentioned this economic study, I'd love for you to bring up in just a second, but there seems to be this huge umbrella of like a hundred different categories that everybody has to be in solidarity on for America to operate. And I think actually, maybe this seems paradoxical, I don't, I don't think it is, but I think in a, to a degree, uh, a society is healthier when it has less points in which everybody must be in solidarity, um, which I think is connected also to this enumeration of rights that are happening, like all over the, I mean, we don't have time to list all the rights that have <laughs> been uh, put forth that need to be, I guess, codified to some extent. But you mentioned that, econ that economic study. Yeah. So a buddy sent me an, a recent study about how people were viewing COVID. And it was broken down actually between Republican men, Democrat men, uh, Republican women and Democratic women. Uh, and, and for the sake of this podcast and just talking about it, it makes it easier that it, it's, it's important to point out in the study that uh, the differences or the parity between Republican men and Republican women and Democratic men and Democrat women is, is pretty small. So you can, it's really at the end of the day, a poll about, you know, how Republicans and Democrats are viewing the issue of COVID. And one of the things that was just so striking to me was that when asked the question, are you ready to resume life, uh, uh, a life of normalcy, like go back to how you were living in pre-COVID, something like 60% of Republican men and women said, yeah, like I'm ready to do that. Uh, I feel comfortable enough saying that I'm ready to live my life uh, normal uh, right now. Uh, versus 3% of, uh, 3 to 5% of Democrat women and men who said the same. And I just think that that is so staggering, especially considering the fact like you think of issues like abortion, which, you know, 
we think of this massive divisive issue in America, you know, people could not be more divided on the issue of abortion. I mean, we're like between the 60 and 40 percentage marks in terms of agreeability on the issue of abortion. And so that 60 to versus like three to five is just staggering. Uh, and I think it, it, it's important to point out though, because your, your comments about uh, solidarity made me think of, um, it's not a very, uh, uh, wise insight by me. It's just a, a matter of solidarity sounds like subsidiary to me. And so then I started thinking about subsidiarity, but I think that there's a, I think that there's a point here, which is that um, we expect a lot of solidarity on this federal level that I don't think is realistic. And so when we talk about solidarity, especially as Christians in our communities, there's an element of like your solidarity probably needs to be higher as you go down the hierarchy of subsidiarity, I guess, as you could, as you could say, and I'm using those terms horribly wrong because I'm not well-versed in them, but I kind of get the, the basic point, which is that, you know, you need a lot more solidarity if you're running an HOA or you're running a, a school board. You don't really need that same level of solidarity at a federal level. And so and that's a point about the way our system is structured and why we're more Republican than Democratic. I mean, use those terms in, you know, little d, little r, which is that like people in the state of Texas have a much different sense of how they want to live their life and what's the best way to, to accomplish that than people in California or New York. And the way that our system is set up is to encourage solidarity at those smaller levels than necessarily demanding it from the, the larger federal level. And it's interesting to me that almost on every issue that we're divided on right now, COVID, Amy Coney Barrett, abortion, um, all these different things. Like marriage, taxes, how to handle the environment, drilling, form, I mean, they're all, they're all there. It's like we demand this solidarity at the federal level. And I, I just don't know if that's one, realistic, and two, preferable. Like, I think it's completely fine to, for the state of Texas and the state of New York to have different ideas about, you know, how do we raise taxes? How, how do we fund our government? And that's fine. now issues like abortion are much trickier just because you're dealing with, you know, a fundamental right to life and you have to define where that, when that right begins and all, and based on where we get there, the implications of, of where we arrive, that may become a federal level where we can't uh, um, allow differing opinions. But I think it, we could probably all say that at, at the time being, the matter at hand is not is not an issue like what you were talking about with the senator. You know, this isn't an issue of Amy Coney Barrett going on the court and banning abortion. This is a matter of can we at least kick it back to being a state's issue um, where, you know, you have the solidarity of your state. And so I, I that's something that I was I've been thinking about when it comes to solidarity and you know this question of democracy that that Senator Lee brought up. It's just kind of interesting to me to see that we have such differing opinions on these matters, and we're sort of we sort of demand that ev that we convert everyone to our side instead of, I guess, choosing to live in a much more pluralistic and diverse society. You know what I mean? It's it's funny that we're we're demanding this level of conformity onto a society that we pride in being diverse and pluralistic. You know. Yes, we are. And I, when I think about the original founding, 1776, 1789, there was a lot more agreement, though, 
amongst people for what the common good was, which allowed for there to be less involvement from the federal government. And it, interestingly enough, it seems that right after the founding, uh, states' governments actually got less restrictive and that there was a removal of involvement in like religious tests for people to hold office. That was, that was deemed inappropriate. And so as we, you know, the hard part is, uh, it seems that as we grow to a more pluralistic society and Richard Mao has the term directional pluralism, which has to do with like foundational religious beliefs that people hold as we move in that kind of pluralism, I don't mean like ethnic pluralism or geographic pluralism. I'm talking about the worldview pluralism becomes much harder to find people in agreement because there is such a fundamentally different agreement on what the good is. And it's a unique problem that America finds itself in never before in human history has a country been in this kind of place where not only is there the, the diversity of ethnic people, you know, magnificently broad, and diverse the worldviews and, and understandings of how life ought to function is seriously different among people groups. And that even in Rome with all of its polytheism, they just kind of adopted it in and we have competing visions at this point. Right. So I guess, you know, the question is from here, what is the, what are the needed points of solidarity for a particular country um, for us as Americans that we need to be in agreement on. I mean, do you think this is why something like the 169 project receives the, the level of criticism that it does because it, it directly attacks one of those points of solidarity, or at least that has historically been one of those points of solidarity for, you know, so many years. I think that it's being attacked because it's a fallacious approach to history and understanding of the origins of America I think what it is, it is, it is a bad attempt at creating this monolith of solidarity where there's one thing you need to be in agreement on. And it is this critical race theory approach to history, economics, the family, philosophy, theology, all of it. Um, and I think that's the criticism is that it is, it is a serious imposition on everybody that impinges to the nth degree how we are allowed to view and operate in this world hmm. and redefines that's, everything. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, going back to sort of your question of, you know, well, what are those points of solidarity? I mean, at this point, it's really hard to really think of like what those might be because there is such a disagreement fundamentally ideologically about, you know, what is the United States its history, its mission, if you want to use that term, or like what it what it's designed to do. It's really hard to see those. I mean, I think for the last maybe few uh, generations, it's been the solidarity around what America accomplished uh, in World War II and defeating communism. Uh, but now that we're so far removed from those events and even now looking back on it more critically, you know, it's hard to figure out what that's going to be. I think a lot of people want it to be the the 60s and everything that happened in that era. But while there's some good, there's a lot of bad there too that people can't really sign off on. You know, it's it's just, I, I don't know what it could be. 
um, going forward. And it's hard because I want to avoid two problems. I don't, I don't want to fall into the trap of placing America to a, a level of uh, worship or something that Christians need to be dedicated solely to preserving, if that makes sense. I mean that in a very charitable way uh, in that it, it's not, America's not the end, right? It's, it's not the end. You want to push back on that? No, I don't. I, I want to, um, I think maybe help illustrate it from a George Washington's favorite verse. Okay. So that every man may sit under his own vine and fig tree, right? The idea is for the country to be set up in such a way where people were able to pursue the goods um, in their own lives to live quiet and peaceful lives in order to uh, have flourishing as we use that term or thriving. Now, again, that has to be caveated with the reality that there was a generally understood concept of what that would look like. It wasn't the radical individualism that so many people nowadays like to accuse the founders of. That is so out of touch with historical reality. Those, for one, the founders were too much, they enjoyed each other's company too much and benefited too much from each other and their letters and their dialogues, their debates, the Federalist Papers alone, to think that you could be a radical individual and make it in this country. That they would have never thought that. Even the Titans, the Titans of the Titans wouldn't have thought that was, was feasible. So I'm talking about in its origin, there was a thought that every man under his vine and fig tree, that there is government is not the common good. It does not actually make the common good. However, it makes room for there to be common good for people. And those two are very different teleologies for government. What is it going to do? Is it itself going to be, which you come up with almost some kind of, you get either a theocracy or religiocracy, but in the secular form, it's still going to be an ultimate something, or you can have allow people to, to pursue this. But then again, this is where it's this vicious caveating circling. You have to have civics and these common agreements and understandings of who we are and what are we after and how does that happen? I wonder what the implications are of that for somebody thinking about, well, how should I integrate my faith and my politics? Um, how should I interact with it? I think that there are a lot, which obviously we, we've touched on a lot in here, but I, I do think when we make the form of government the end, or we, or we sort of hold that assumption that democracy is the, the end, that causes a lot of problems with how Christians are, are called to relate to the state. I think it makes it us much more uh, susceptible to the culture's predominant narrative about voting and uh, engaging in activism and all these kind of things. Whereas um, somebody who is viewing the good life as the end and government being a means to that end and not even the means, but a means right to that end, you know, serving very specific purposes in those means can be very liberating about how we, integrate the state. I, I don't know about you, but like, I just kind of feel overwhelmed. Like I, every single, every single day I log on to Twitter or Facebook, um, or I go on to SoundCloud to check our stats or open an email from a, from a company that I, you know, do business with or something like that. And like, everything is about like, you got to vote, you got to vote, you got to vote, you got to do this, you got to do this, join this. Do, and it just, I think it's just overwhelming. It just, it consumes so much. Uh, it, it can consume so much of our time where 
we're then distracted and we're not, or we're not spending that time like actually interacting with the people who God has put in our lives. Like my neighbor, and when I say my neighbor, I mean the person who lives next to me uh, on my street. Um, I, I just, that's way more liberating to me than the sort of endless list of to-dos and, to, and not-dos that comes with um, a worldview that makes democracy in action the end. I, I just don't know if I can handle it. I've got way too much in my life. It puts a weight on it, and it's too late if, um, as we mentioned last time, when people view you know, what America needs is to reform its voting practices. And I'm thinking, ah, I think it goes way deeper than that and goes way further back than that. And how we interact with our friends and our neighbors and what we care about, what we love, to me, to be Augustinian about it, that is uh, way more important than voting. And voting is important. But then again, I don't think that you have to, if you're a Christian, I don't think you have to vote. I don't think that that's a, a command in scripture. And it elevates it to, I think, uh, an inappropriate place and expects it to do more. And, and then leaves us disenchanted, I think, and, and uh, disappointed with it because it hasn't come through on promises that it never made but that we, we expected out of it. Well, Will, I don't know how I can improve on that. I think your points about solidarity are really interesting. I would like to explore those more. Um, but this has been great. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to the Will and Rob Show. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Artie Hessler. Follow Will at Stockdale Will. Make sure to check out ministrystate.org uh, and check out all the cool things that we're doing there. Uh, and with that, we'll see you guys again next week.